0: So the, the Bible says that... Uh, is this working? the oh, yeah, others? So the Bible says to preach in season, out of season. Um, one time Jim called me. Um, it was Saturday after 5. And said, can you preach? And I said, well, yeah. Like two weeks from now? And he said, no, tomorrow. And it's like, that's a little difficult. But I usually try to always have something on the burner. So I, I gave what I had. But it was about a month ago, I was talking to Todd at the leadership meeting, and I said, you know, for the first time in my life, I'm going to try to read through the Old Testament in Hebrew. And um, obviously not my first language, and I don't have a lot of training. So it was really going slow. So I told him, I says, you know, I'm not reading through it that terribly fast. And then I joked to him, he says, but I am going through it a lot faster than you are. (laughs) And... uh, you know, I think, wasn't it a couple of weeks ago we had a miracle where he actually went through a whole chapter? and You know, or I was probably just dreaming, but that's... So, as I'm reading through, I'm in Exodus, when we're in Exodus, and this very... You yeah, have it is when the verse pops out at you, and as I'm reading through, I, I stop and record that, because I know uh, the two ways I study is I read a lot in the Bible, but then when I get that, I always go back and study. And so I had like... 12 pages of notes on this subject, on one verse. And I thought, you know, if Jim calls on Saturday night, I'll be ready, because I already have the whole message. So he talked to me last week, and normally I'd want two or three weeks. But he said, do you have anything on your heart with prayer? I go, exactly something that I've been working on, and I'll be ready by Sunday. I was telling Cheryl, I was asked to lead prayer and thanksgiving last week, And I said, this is frustrating. I have this message I want to get out and I can't, don't have time to do it at the Thanksgiving in prayer. What am I going to do to, you know, sometimes the prophets talked about having a burden, you know, they have to share it. So it was like, this is God's timing. So I would say, not because of me or because of Todd, but because of what God is doing that this message should speak to you in a special way, um, arranged by the Holy Ghost, not by man. So, You know, in Exodus, it's one of the, it's one of the incredible books in the Bible in in so many ways, but there's two things like to point out. Uh, if you want to go into the deep deep well of God's revelation, there's two things you should study in depth. The Feast of Israel and the Tabernacle, the furniture in the Tabernacle. And they're both in Exodus, right? And, uh, it was Derek Prince that said one time, if you are studying God's word and you come up with six things about God you're probably missing one because there's usually seven you know I think it's a proverbs that says uh, God hates six things and then he goes wait a second no there's seven things he hates and so I counted the furniture I only came up with six and I thought I'm one short and then I studied it deeper and you know what we call the ark is actually made of two components there's the mercy seat that is separate. It was designed and created by Betzel. And then there's the ark itself. And then God says, hey, take the mercy seat and put it on the ark. So there is seven pieces of furniture. And so you want to know what God is up to in the plan. What's the biggest thing on God's agenda all time? The redemption of mankind. And what did the feast and the furnitures describe? The path and procedure and order of God's going to accomplish that. The first feast, Passover. What happens? An innocent animal dies for the sin of humans. The first piece of furniture, the brazen altar. What happens there? Innocent animals shed their blood for the forgiveness of of sin. And you go through the whole thing. The second feast, unleavened bread. Live a holy life. Be pure. Second piece of furniture, the labor, where the priest would wash to be clean. So it goes through the whole thing. And the last feast... Is the Feast of Tabernacles. In Revelation 21, at the very end, a great angel cries out loud voice, The tabernacle of God is with men. He, he will dwell amongst them, and he will be their God, and they will be his people. That's the end goal. God is restoring mankind. And in the, in the furniture, the last piece of furniture is the ark, which is representative of God. The priest would go through this entire procedure, and only one time a year was he allowed to go into the Holy of Holies. And he had to bring two things with him when he went in. He had to bring blood, and he had to bring incense. The Bible says that he had to get hot coals from the altar, and he would pour a big handful of incense into it so that it would just fill the whole Holy of Holies with Uh, incense, smoke. And the Bible says, and if he didn't do it, at least he die. This was a very important thing. He had to go in with blood and incense. So as, as, uh, Todd pointed out last week, uh, incense, David said, let the, let my prayer be like incense. So the Bible a lot of times describes and interprets itself. You know, what, what does the lampstand represent? Well, you could guess, or you could go to Revelation and say, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So it's symbolic of the church. You know, John uh, in John 15 it says, Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. There in the lampstand there's a vine, the middle post, the big one, and outside of it, the branches. So that's the church. So what is prayer? This incense, and the studied... Interesting thing in the, in the Hebrew. If you translate the four, remember he listed the four ingredients and you can hardly pronounce them in English and it's no easier in, in Hebrew. But the four ingredients all represent something. And here's what they represent if you study the word and the root, which the root word usually gives more meaning to the, the word. The four ingredients of incense, which we could say is the four ingredients of prayer. The first one is inspiration. It's flow. This is the word that God uses for the prophets that spoke with inspiration. A Preacher, natif, it comes from the word that means preacher. It's what uh, Paul would say, praying in the spirit. So proper prayer is not just you talking, but it's the Holy Spirit assisting you to pray correctly. The second ingredient comes from the word in Hebrew used for lion or a lion's roar. This is a... Imagine with me a roar that's so loud it it peels the bark off a tree. That's what it's trying to describe. It's describing what in prayer? Boldness. That you look through the Bible, some people had some incredibly bold prayers. How about Joshua asking God to stop the sun and moon? Now, isn't that just a hair over the top of what somebody should ask? Can you imagine if I was God, to go, Joshua, what? why do you want me to stop the sun and the moon? Well, so I can beat up some Canaanites. Can't you beat them up tomorrow? Do you need me to extend the day? I mean, that's audacious, isn't it? Bold. The third ingredient is, comes from the root to be fat or to be the best. The the analogy of fat is always a, a Hebrew analogy for the best. You know, in Pharaoh's dream, he saw seven fat cows and seven thin cows. Well, the fat cows were the healthy cows, right? So this would be uh, describing the first fruits of the land, the promised land. It's always the best. So in our prayer, giving God the best. So an example of not giving God the best is... Uh, you're praying and your phone goes off and you answer the phone or you look at it and it says, oh, you left an item in your Amazon cart. You should buy it. And you stop and you interrupt. time. That's not respecting God, is it? You wouldn't do that to a governor or somebody important you'd had time with. So it's giving God your best. Daniel would be a good example of that three times a day. He gave his best in prayer. And the last one is uh, frankincense, and it comes from the root word to be white, uh, because it's white, and because the smoke it gives off is white. And of course, this is symbolic of, of purity. David said, if I regard iniquity in my heart, God won't hear. So those are the ingredients of prayer according to the incense. So I want to take you to, um, if we can go to the first first slide. So in Psalm 107, three times this this exact phrase is uh, listed there. So there's three stories in the psalm. The first one is people innocently get themselves into trouble. And it, it gets so bad that the Bible says, and they cried out to the Lord. That word cried out, there's two words in the Hebrew. They're almost exactly the same, even the way they spell it. The only way I can describe it is like, uh, ever seen that some people spell gray with an A and others with an E? That's, this, this is, this is. There's two ways to spell this word, and they sound almost the same. One is with a T-S sound, and one is with a Z. And so, a Zaak is the word. And the Bible says, and they cried out to the Lord. That's, they cried out is the Zaak word. And so, the first story in this chapter of Psalm, it says they, People innocently got in trouble and they cried out to God and God delivered them. The second story is because people disobeyed God and didn't listen to him, got into trouble, but it got so bad that eventually cried out to the Lord and he delivered them. And the third one, again, the same thing, the people got into trouble. And this is kind of the pattern. And you study the book of Judges and what what is the pattern? People get into big trouble. It gets bad, but they think they can handle it. Then it gets really bad and then finally they go, all right, it's gotten so bad we have to do the, you know, thing. We have to pray. And it's like, you know, it doesn't have to be the last thing you do. It can be, the first thing you do. So the verse that I was reading through in my Hebrew and came across this word. If you go to the next slide. So that obviously the top's in English, the bottom's in Hebrew. Um, I know it's a strange verse maybe to just jump out at you, but. It, it's uh, God speaking uh, through Moses and says, you shall not afflict a widow or a father, this child an orphan. If you afflict them in any way and they cry out to me, the, the word cry out is Zahach. Um, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn hot, become hot and I will kill you with the sword and your wives will be widows and your children and fathers. And several things jumped out at me. It says, well, first of all, if, this is kind of a severe judgment on somebody that mistreats. You know, if you steal a lamb, you have to restore four. That seems appropriate. Teach the guy not to steal. Now, let me, let me go through this briefly in the Hebrew and, and show you the way Hebrew emphasizes things. It emphasizes things by saying the same thing in two different ways. The Bible says, Moses said, Remember what the Amalekites did to you? And then later in the same chapter it says, don't forget what the Amalekites did to you. Well, it's kind of the same thing, right? And in the garden where God said, eat freely of all the trees except that one, it doesn't say eat freely. It's actually Hebrew. Eat, eat. The word is repeated twice. That's the way Hebrew emphasizes. So here it says, uh, every widow and orphan you shall not mistreat. If you and that the mistreat is repeated twice here. You see the same root and that has the to you. if you mistreat, mistreat them, surely if, and here's the if, the biggest, I call it the biggest little word in the Bible, if, if they cry, azak cry, double out to me, God says, Shema, Ishma, Hearing I will hear, repeated, hearing I will hear their cry. And here's the the red part. It's a Hebrew expression that they didn't translate it directly because it probably wouldn't make any sense to an English reader. It says, and my face will become hot. Or my nose will become hot. And this is repeated probably 20 times in the Bible. And my nose will burn, could be translated. Ever seen somebody so mad their face turns red? This is what it's trying to express. And my nose will burn, and I will kill you with the sword. And I thought, boy, that's a little bit over the top um, in the action there. So I, I was looking at this was quickened to me. And I go, okay, let me see. What am I getting from this verse? And I said, I'm seeing three things. One, if there is a mistreatment or if there's people in big trouble, point one. Two, if they call out to God. Now, this doesn't, it's like prayer. Prayer doesn't work if you don't do it, right? So, if you don't try out to God, then don't expect God to answer. But if the mistreated person cries out to God. Then the third thing I was seeing, God moves in in an incredible way, far more than I thought He would, more than I think is necessary. And so this is how I study the Bible. When something quickens to me like that, I go, okay, one verse, you can't base your uh, biblical belief on one verse, the Bible says, the mouth of two or three. You know, a good one-off verse would be, uh, remember when God told Hosea to marry a whore? That's a one-off. There's no repeating of that. There's no encouraging. It's just a one-off. You can't build a doctrine on that. In fact, if you want to build the doctrine, you would follow what the priests were required to marry a woman from their own tribe who was a virgin. So the goal, and Paul would echo that, don't be yoked with an unbeliever. So you have to take the one that's repeated as the doctrine, not the one-off. So I can't base any belief on my coming across this one verse. But I thought, here's how I'm going to prove it, just like Jesus did when he was walking. Remember, on the road to Emmaus, the Bible says he began at Moses and then the prophets. And later in the chapter, it talks about the book of Psalms and what he do? He opened the scriptures and told them about himself. So I use the same philosophy. If this is true, then I'm going to find throughout, scattered through the Bible... Law of Moses, prophets, Psalm, and now we have the New Testament. I'm going to find stories that illustrate these this theory of mine. And so the first one I came across was, if you can go to the next slide, I was trying to think in my mind, where have I heard the cry out thing? And I was thinking, okay, remember at the burning bush, God shows up, and what are we looking for? We're looking for people that are being mistreated. And because they're mistreated, they cry, call out to God. And so what do we have? God says, I've come down. Why have you come down, Lord? I've seen my people mistreated. Well, that's the first one. How about the second one? And I've heard the cry of my people. Zach. Okay. Now, do we see the third thing happen? Does God move in a spectacular way? after the people who have been mistreated call out to God? Ten plagues, parting the Red Sea, drowns the army of the Egyptians in the waters. I would say that's pretty uh, qualifying for a good work. In fact, every time God's wanting to remind uh, Israel of his great work for them, was does he say? I am the Lord that brought you out of Egypt. He summarizes the whole event and I brought you out of Egypt. So I said, okay, I've got one confirmation that uh, fits my understanding. Go to the next slide. And this is the next one I thought of. You know, I've, I was thinking, when how many times in the Old Testament God gets so concerned about something that instead of appearing in a burning bush or a pillar of fire or a voice, still small voice, that he actually decided to come down and take on a human form? I mean, that's top-level importance, right? And I could only think of two times. Remember in the fiery furnace, they threw the three Hebrew children in, and the king stood up and says, wait a second, I thought we threw three in. And I'm counting four. And the fourth man looks like the Son of God. Here, an appearance of God before Christ had an actual physical body in the furnace. And this is the other time the story goes. Uh, Abraham, heat of the day, sitting at the tent door. And the Bible says, in the Hebrew, it says three men on a sheen showed up. He didn't know who they were yet, I don't think. It's three men. But Abraham, imagine this. He's 99 years old. And the Bible says he ran to them. And he uh, asked them to come. Don't pass me by. He invited them in such such hospitality. And he says... Get this, he says, I'll give you a morsel of meat, or a morsel of food. That's all he promised them. And then he goes and kills the fatted calf. I mean, he totally overdid his hospitality. So anyway, there's three men, and as the story goes on, we start to see that actually that isn't three men. These are The expression there means three people that look like ordinary men, apparently. But as we get through the story, later in the story, uh... Two of these men left, and then they're identified as angels. So God and the other guy... Now, who's this third guy, right? Well, ten times in the, this chapter, the word uh, associated with this third person is the uh, the tetragrammaton, the word that the Jews won't even say. I think I told you one time I was in, in Jerusalem... Showing this Jew that had come over to visit that I was learning to read Hebrew. And he said, oh, you can read Hebrew. And I said, well, show me. And so I started to read. There's a very simple portion of the Old Testament. But I said, and and the Lord said, and instead of saying uh, what they would do is re- always replacing Lord with uh, the name, the Hashem. I said, and the Lord, and the Lord, Yahweh, I said, the the, the holy word the word that's always associated only with Jehovah. It's Jehovah in English. The guy, I thought he was going to have a heart attack. He says, you never say that word. He said, you say Adonai or you say Hashem. I go, okay, okay. So when it's mentioned ten times, there's no doubt who this third person is. It's Jehovah. So now let's run this through my... Theory. Bible says test everything, if it, hold fast if it's good. Then my theory is God moves when there's injustice or somebody's in big trouble if they cry out. Right? So do we have that? What did God say to Abraham? He says, I've come down. Now we get to find out why he came down in person. I've come down because of the outcry over Sodom. Outcry, same word, Zach. So you can imagine, we know this story, I won't go into any detail, but what the people of Sodom tried to do to the angels, right? They're angels, you're blind, right? They took care of it. What happened to the innocent people that went through Sodom who didn't have the power of an angel? What did they want to do to these two angels? You don't even want to mention it. So you can imagine, after being assaulted, that the people would cry, what they did, they would za'ak. God, you have to do something about this. Can you imagine sinners calling to God over other people even worse sinners? Because there are no covenant people in this time. Only Abraham's the only guy in the covenant. And so sinners are crying to God over worse sinners and God comes down. He says, I've come down over the cry of the people. So here we have what we have. We have mistreatment. First point. What do we have? People crying out. And do we have the third point where God does something extraordinary? Calling fire out of heaven, consuming the whole area? I would say that would qualify for an incredible response to the outcry. Go to the next slide. So... The brief story here. Hezekiah sick, near death. And um, Isaiah the prophet. Now Isaiah wasn't the third string preacher, right? He was top tier guy. So when he spoke, it was it. And Isaiah shows up and says very distinctly, very clearly, um, Put your house in order. You uh, set your house in order. You shall die. And in case that's not clear... And not live. So here's kind of the Hebrew again, Ephesus. Well, dying means not living, right? Why does God repeat it? It's the way Hebrews emphasize things. You shall die and not live. You think, well, that guy is not toast, he's burnt toast. You know? Isaiah, double death, you're gone, smoke. But what happens? He cries out to God, and you have to compare a lot of times like the Gospels. The same story is repeated, and if you put them all together, you get a complete picture. And here we have, uh, using the two portions of Scripture, Isaiah and Second uh, Kings, we have a complete story. So, it's just kind of a blunt word. You're going to die, not live, see you later. The Bible says he didn't make it to the middle of the court, which would have been a three-minute walk. Before God stopped, he said, well, but go back. Go back and what? I just told him he's gone. Double gone. Go back and tell him that I've added 15 years. What in the world happened in a few minutes of time between you're dead, you're dead, and you get 15 years, and then he goes on the promise, I'll spare the city and take care of you. What happened? He cried out to God. And what did God do? You know, if I was on my deathbed and thinking I was going to die in a few days, and then God said, no, I'll give you 15 more years, wouldn't that be like an awesome answer? I would think so. Let's look at this next one. This one is an interesting one that I want to point out a different um, thing. If we go to the next slide. Uh, it's the story of... Remember the story They. the... The crowd had come. Jesus sent the crowd away. He went to the mountain to pray. He sent his disciples across on the lake. See, a galleys about seven miles wide at that area and fourteen miles long, like a teardrop. And The Bible says that in the fourth watch, which is between three and six, they they probably been out there for nine or ten hours trying to get across the lake. They only got halfway, and the Bible says that Jesus came walking on the water. Um, so. Jesus, he saw them straining. He knows they're struggling. For the wind was against them. About the fourth watch night, he came to them walking on the water. Listen, look at that. That's, of course, me underlining to emphasize, but it's in the Bible. And would have passed them by. Does that make sense to you? And would have passed them by. He saw them toiling. He saw them in trouble. And he would have passed them by. Well, the... Bible turns out to say he didn't pass him by. What happened? Zock they cried out. So this kind of adds a different flavor to it emphasizing that you have the option to cry out to God, but if you don't, what happens? Jesus might pass you by. He's not a Beninsky. The Bible says his will is none should perish. Are any people going to perish? Jesus said, only a few enter through the narrow gate. So what's the contradiction? It's the contradiction between what God wants and what people will cry. God is sovereign, but he's limited himself by giving man free will. He's not going to force you to go to heaven. So they cried out. And in this same story is probably the time where you remember they thought he was a ghost and, of course, Peter is going to be the first one to say something. He says, Lord, if it's really you and not a ghost, tell me to come. And God's not uh, like chatty Cathy. So what does Jesus say? This one word. He doesn't say like, well, if you really have faith, you might want to come. But then again, you might drown if you do. Whatever. No, come. What's the story go? So Jesus is standing there watching Peter come. And he initially does well keeping his eyes on Jesus. The Bible says he took his eyes off Jesus. Pay attention to the wind and the waves, and beginning to sink. It doesn't say. And Jesus ran and saved him. He's seeing him sink, and Jesus not doing anything. It's like the same thing. He's pass, kind of passing him by. He's not. Why? Is, what's he waiting for? Peter cried out, "Lord, save me!" Then he gets saved. So the emphasis here is, people, you have to cry out for this to work. Yes, God sees your predicament, and he knows you need help. It's like he said, the Bible says at one point, he knows what you need before you ask him, but still ask. And so the lesson here is don't let Jesus pass you by because you're thinking, well, he knows my need, he'll help me. Well, the Bible says you need to cry out to God if you want to get his help. The next one is the story of the blind man at Jericho. The story is, this is the portion of scripture where it says that Jesus had set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem, his final and most important mission. Nothing's going to stop him, right? And this is where the village, the Bible says the village recognized that he was not going to stay and just pass through, so they didn't welcome him. And the sons of thunder said, Lord, do you want us to call fire down on him? Like, like, that's why they're called the sons to thunder, right? So he set like a flint to go to Jerusalem and this blind man near Jericho is, is on the pathway on the road apparently and he hears a commotion and of course he's blind. He doesn't know what's going on. So he asks, him, Hey, what's going on? He said, it's Jesus passing by. So what does he do? The Bible says that he cried out. Oh, and I looked this up. This obviously is in Greek, but it had to be translated into the New Testament. Hebrew, and guess what word they used? Za'ach, same word. And the blind man cried out. So, here's a lesson. Sometimes when you cry out, people will discourage you, and the peak crowd said, shut up, be quiet. And what did he do? He cried out all the more. He za'ached, and then he za'ached. And here's an interesting verse. So Jesus stood still. Did you love that? A guy that's on a mission won't stop for nothing. Here's the Zaok and the Bible says, and Jesus stood still. He commanded him to come. What do you want? I want to receive my sight. I bet you he didn't start that day thinking he was going to see you at the end of the day. That's kind of a miraculous ending to that day for him. One more story, and then we'll conclude. Next slide. We know this story, of the woman from Cana. So this woman has got the cry out thing down. She's crying out so much, the disciples came to Jesus and tell Jesus, Can you tell her to shut up? She keeps zaakim She keeps crying out after us. And I wouldn't believe for a moment that Pistol Pete didn't try to tell her to shut up already. Right? So she's got this Zoc thing down. And here we go to the next portion. Um, She keeps pressing into Jesus. And Jesus says, I'm not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This appears on the surface to be that Jesus is telling him why he can't help. It makes sense that he's sent to a specific assignment. He has to do what God says, right? A lot of times when we read the Bible, uh, sometimes God says things. If we only take the surface meeting, we really don't get the, the right message. How about in the garden where God said, Adam, where are you? What's the If you just took the plain and simple translation, God doesn't know where Adam is. His GPS didn't work that day, right? No. What's he saying? He knows where Adam is. He his question's gonna evoke an answer from Adam that's gonna reveal Adam's heart. And so when you read sometimes the surface, you think, Well, he Jesus is trying to discourage her and tell her, get ready, because I'm not gonna be able to do it. You know, it's kinda like remember when they ran out of wine and they came to Jesus? What did he say to Mary? It's not my time kind of gives you the indication that he can't do anything. It's not my time. Well, here we have Jesus saying, I can't do anything because I'm only sent to the lost sheep house of Israel. She pressed in and worshipped him, the Bible says. Cried out, help me, which is a zock. Help me, Lord. And then he answered a second time. It's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Whoo! that was a hard one to hear, wouldn't you think? And yet, she doesn't respond. You know, the proverb says, By long forbearance, a ruler is persuaded, and a gentle tongue breaks the bone. She could have got it. Don't call me a dog. What does she do? Softly says, You're right, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs. Oh! Now we have this change. Two statements that seem like Jesus doesn't want to help her. And then we have this, Flip-flop where he says, oh woman, you got great faith. He only said this to two people in the whole New Testament. Both Gentiles, by the way. So what do we see here? Are these two statements coming from Jesus with the heart to discourage her? Or are they coming from Jesus to test her faith? What if Moses would have done exactly what God told him to do at times? How many times? Probably two or three times in the, in the The first five books of Moses where God says stand back Moses I'm going to wipe out the whole congregation and make of you a nation greater than them well a good Baptist would just say well okay I'll stand back (laughs) God told me well how about Hezekiah you're going to die why didn't he say well God wants me dead I guess better get my house in order no he pushes back she pushes back I think God is not afraid to hear us respond. What did Abraham do when he heard that Sodom was going to be wiped out? Well, God works in a mysterious way. If he wants to kill everybody, I guess that's fine. No, he started to intercede. He started to try to change God's mind. I was teaching in Jerusalem one time and I was going through this story. You know, if there's 50, 45, you know, and I, I said... Abraham, the first Jew, Jewed him down to ten. And the people, and it's like, you don't use that expression in Israel. Well, it seemed to fit to me. Anyway, I was young. But even ten didn't work, right? Maybe this is where they get the number ten thing. When I was in Minsk, Russia, I was meeting Jews that were called refuseniks, who tried to get out, but refused, the so refuseniks. And uh, we went to synagogue, and uh, I was the only Gentile. My my guy was traveling with was part Jewish, and uh, the rabbi came out and he went and he pointed at me, and I did. He was counting, and I figured out later you have to have ten men before you can pray. You can't pray with nine, right? And you have to be Jewish, by the way. And uh, and so the rabbi in Russian was talking to my friend and. And later I found out, I said, what was he doing? He says, well, he's counting. You know, we have to have 10 uh, or you can't pray. And, and he asked, well, we got 10, but is this guy a Jew? And I'm not a Jew, I'm Irish. And uh, the guy, guy said, I told him you're a Jew. <laughs> he says, anybody come all the way over here to, to help the Jews? You love the Jews. You're Jew, Jew enough for me. And so Abraham talked him down to 10. He, he pushed back, he prayed, he interceded. You know, we think sometimes God, his sovereignty means he's unchangeable. And sometimes he speaks like in Jonah, 40 days and the city's gone, right? That's the truth if the heart and condition of the stays the way it is. That's true. But what's also true? God loves people that cry out to him and repent. Now it's different. God's not different. The situation's different. So it's okay to to push, I hate to use push back the right word, but to reason, with God. God says come and reason with me. I think it's okay to reason with God. And so this woman has great faith, but if, if you look at it just in the natural, why didn't she humble herself when God said, I'm not, she said, I'm not sent except to lost sheep. And she said, well, I guess I'm a Gentile. I'll see you later. Why didn't she just give up? Or the second time she was discouraged. You know, this would indicate that after I healed every Jew, now the Gentiles are second. The dogs, which the Jews referred to the Gentiles, then you get to heal. I'll heal you, but after I get done with all the Jews. No, she pressed in. And what did Jesus end up saying? You have great faith. And so, the point here, and I'll close with the next slide. The point here I'm trying to convey is God wants us to cry out to God. Prayer doesn't work unless you do it. And the word zok doesn't mean kind of a mild thing. Remember I talked about prayer. One of the ingredients in incense is boldness. There's this tenacity. What gives Hezekiah the right after he's been told by a anointed prophet he's going to die to cry out to God not to die? God wants us to express our heart and our feelings. So here's a story that illustrates the power of incense, which means the power of prayer. Um, one of the times in the wilderness, how many times this happened? Where and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Get out this is what I was talking about, get out of the way from the congregation, I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces, and Moses said to Aaron, Take a censer and put fire in it from the altar and put incense on it and take it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them, for the wrath has gone out from the Lord. And the Bible says he did that. And when he went out with his incense, which is symbolic of prayer, the Bible says that where he came to stood the line between the living and the dead. His intercession had stopped the plague. The power of prayer. And in case you're wondering if if uh prayer is really related to incense, here we have the clearest definite Revelation five eight. And now when he had taken the scroll the four living creatures and the twenty four elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Pretty clear. You don't need to interpret that or get an expert. It says what it is. And I didn't notice that this until this morning. It says four living creatures and twenty-four elders, so that's twenty-eight, right? Fell down before them, each having a harp, which would indicate in me my mind, one, right? And golden bowls. It doesn't say, and a golden bowl. It says, and golden bowls. They could have had more than one. So there's at least 28 bowls in heaven, and possibly more. And you think of it this way. Remember the story where Jesus multiplied the bread? So he took a boy's lunch, multiplied it like crazy, and they had 12 basketfuls left over, the Bible says. And... It was bread that was created out basically out of nothing, it seems like, right? It didn't cost anything. One of the disciples said it would take 200 denarii to buy all that. And so it didn't cost anything. You think Jesus would say, you know, just leave it. But he says, let nothing be lost. And they gathered all these crumbs, leftover bread, and stored them in 12 baskets. So I want to use that analogy. If Jesus thinks that bread crumbs are important enough that let nothing be lost, what do you think God's opinion of our prayers are? Well, according to this scripture, the the prayers are so pleasing to God, they're like a sweet-smelling incense, they're so fragrant that He stores them up. You know, when I get junk mail, what do I do? I throw it away, right? If you get a love letter when you're young and your 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 wife or your wife-to-be is away and she sends you a love letter... Or vice versa, the guy sends her one. You, you treasure it, right? It's important. You may store it in a box. You never get rid of it. It's so important. Well, this is the analogy God is saying. I store up your prayers. They're sweet. They're the sweetest thing. Damn. He stores them up. And later in Revelation, the Bible says these bowls full of prayers are poured out on the earth. This would indicate to me that God is answering those prayers. What if it's true that every prayer you pray with this zock, this crying out, God says, that's an, that's an awesome prayer. I'm keeping that one. Okay, he doesn't maybe keep the one, uh, Lord, can I have a parking spot closest to the door? Yeah. I don't want to have the gold medal of the closest to the door prayer. I want the prayer that God uh, keeps and treasures and that one day he'll pour out and an answer. Can you imagine the end times? If this is true, the end times is going to be, as promised, the hardest time of the year, but the time when the most prayers will be answered. The times when God will move the most magnificently. This after all, what is the feasts and what is the f- furniture in the tabernacle point to? That God wants to redeem mankind. And sometimes, It's human nature. As Todd pointed out last week, prayer shouldn't be the last resort. But it usually is, right? We let, we think in our pride, I can fix this. This is not a big problem. You know, like our government says, you know, 30 trillion is not a big problem. We'll fix it. How are you going to fix it? We're going to borrow more money. What? And then what? At some point, they finally realize, and they have to cry out. You think about it. What would have happened if when COVID hit two years ago that our government called upon the church leaders to have a national day of Zaak crying out to God? You think we would have went through the last two years as we went? But what do we do? Oh, we're, we've got the best medical in the world. We're, immune. we'll take care of it. And what? America had one of the worst outcomes. There's places in third world countries that have much better outcomes without their great medical ideas that we had. So, a lesson. Prayer only works if you do it. And the prayer God is looking for is this za'ak. It's an inspired prayer. It's a bold prayer. It's giving God your best in prayer. And it's from a holy heart. Those are the three, four ingredients of incense. And the four ingredients of of prayer. Let's let's pray. Father, I believe this message was for you, from you, for this time and this place. Lord, and I personally believe that since the last piece of furniture that's in the tabernacle is the altar of incense, before they get to see the ark of the covenant, the, the appearance of Christ, that. Because of the end times and the trouble that will come, it will be the most inti- intense time of prayer. That people will be crying out to you like never before. And Lord, we have great hope in this pattern that we've seen today. That Lord, when there's injustice or there's big trouble and people cry out to you, they then then you answer in a magnificent way. Lord, we wait for that day when the clouds will part and the trumpet will sound and that we will be raised up to be with you forever. Lord, we long for that day to happen. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord, we pray. And help us, Lord, to be faithful with prayer. Lord, help us. Remind us, Lord, maybe you're, we're embarrassed to pray, out, cry out loud in a group, but Lord, we're driving in the car, we're home alone. Lord, I don't think you'd mind a bit that we cry out to you in a more intense way and more often. Lord, we need to be ready because the times are coming when it will be easier to pray because there will be so much trouble. Help us, Lord, to be faithful now. And help us to believe, Lord, as we've seen over and over in Scripture, that, Lord, when we do cry out, you answer. You're faithful. And when the answer doesn't come now, it's because you're storing up the prayer in a bowl. You're not going to forget it. All the prayers we've played for the lost, our family members. There's a day coming when you're going to pour out that bowl when it's full. And that, Lord, we will see magnificent answers. We trust you, we believe you, and we thank you, Lord, for your word. In Jesus' name.